Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you think about some of the themes that we've discussed on the podcast recently, it starts with the premise that life is hard and that the world we live in today is rapidly evolving, uncertain, complex, and nonlinear. But a thinly veiled goal of our podcast this season particularly has been to give you reasons to be hopeful and optimistic about your future and to reinforce a positive mindset when it comes to how you will lead yourself and your team, no matter the challenges and tests that you'll inevitably face. Harvard philosopher and psychologist William James once said that pessimism leads to weakness and optimism to power. And that's insight we leaders are always wise to remember. Today, our guest is another optimist, someone who studies the future of work trends and has the option of framing them negatively or positively. And we invited her because of her possibility thinking. Heather McGowan is the co-author with Chris Shipley of the Adaptation Advantage and the soon to be released Empathy Advantage. And as a future of work strategist, she's not one of the doomsayers convinced that artificial intelligence and other technologies will instantly replace human work. She believes technology will not only expand our cognitive and creative capacity, and that just like with any other tool, they'll need humans to be useful. A member of the LGBTQ community, Heather notes in her book that gender and sexual identity have become the most rapidly transforming demographic in the workforce today. And coincidentally, our previous guest, Rohit Bhargava, made a similar assertion in his book, which means learning to manage a truly diverse employee team has also emerged as a very important leadership competency. Heather is also a big fan of this podcast and in a generous and highly supportive way. She's told me privately that her work has been greatly informed by the discussions she's heard here. And I find that kind of candor and acknowledgement really impressive and kind. We have a wide-ranging discussion planned for you, and I am pleased to welcome her to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Excited to have you join us, Heather. Hey there. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Yeah. You're a future of work strategist, Heather. And I read recently that Forbes magazine named you as being one of the top 50 female futurists in the United States. And it's the workplace notion that I'm interested in and how you got there and how you chose this occupation and how you've gone about cultivating your expertise. So let's start there and just ground everybody in your background. Okay, well, the future work strategist, to be honest with you, is a completely made up title. <laughs> I'm gonna have to take a note of that. It's made up because I had sort of evolved through a variety of occupations and found myself as a keynote speaker. And when people would make an introduction, they would say, well, what do I call you? And so a friend of mine went to one of those websites, you know, pick something from column A, something from column B, something from column C. And she said, I think you're this. And so I went with that. So it's not in a position I applied for, nor is there any specific qualifications for it. All it really means is I've spent the last, and when I really look at it, a couple of decades looking at the changing nature of work. And I did it from an academic standpoint for about a decade where I built new curriculum to better prepare people for a world of uncertainty, ambiguity, and change, to I built a college focused on transdisciplinary education between design, engineering, and business that organized half of an existing university and 18 different undergraduate majors. Like, what's the common language they need to have to seamlessly collaborate? to corporate consulting work I did in white space exploration from design thinking to management strategy. And all along the way, I just kept seeing that the only people were talking about this thing called the future work, and that word didn't even really exist yet, were people talking about how technology was going to enslave a useless class of humans. And I just found that profoundly offensive. I'm too optimistic as a champion for a team human. So I started explaining the world as I saw it to my academic clients, to my corporate clients, and then it became its own thing. So that's very concise. What was the university and how did you get associated with it? First, I worked at my undergrad institution, which is Rhode Island School of Design. Rhode Island School of Design had formed a center for design and business. At the time, they thought they needed to teach business skills to the designers. They didn't realize they needed to teach design thinking to business. So when they had shifted that perspective, I was there to help them sort of reconceive what that center was about, which was a lot of corporate engagement. 
And then I had a professor who was in a mentor of mine when I was getting my MBA, who became president of a university. And he said, we've had these conversations over the last decade where you tell me that I'm seeing everything through a discipline lens and that we need to think differently about innovation. I think you just intuitively understand these things. Will you come help me reorganize the university and build a new college that's focused on this stuff? And so I was absolutely unqualified for that, but I went and did that in over four years, built a new college, new organizational structure for the college, capital campaign, new buildings, new curriculum, and all that. So that's how that happened. Well, I'm curious as to big picture. So... I happen to be in your camp, although, you know, you've got Goldman Sachs and McKinsey trying to scare the hell out of people by saying hundreds of millions of jobs are going to be wiped out. And Mm. coincidentally, we had Rohit Bhargava, who is a broader futurist, like he's futurist in the grand scale. And he poo-pooed that and said, you know, you really think it's going to happen like that? But they have intelligent researchers at these organizations. Why are they coming to a different conclusion about this? Well, I think you tend to fall in love with the technology and you think something's going to happen on a schedule that makes sense to you. And the only thing that's really true is nothing's going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. I mean, the famous example, it's changed in the last few years, but when ATMs came out, which was 40, 50 years ago, we thought there won't be any more bank tellers. But for a very long time, there were more bank tellers than there were previously because the ATM allowed them to shrink the footprint of the bank. And then people wanted more bank locations to make it more convenient. And therefore, we ended up with more bank tellers. So a lot of our predictions, for them to be right, we just have to wait a long period of time. Maybe some of these technologies will replace a large percentage of the work tasks that we do. If that happens, that might be the good news because we've got a labor shortage that seems to continue unabated, at least in the U.S. and the U.K. and Asia and some other parts of the world where we don't have a solution to it. But it's not going to happen overnight. It never has. So that's great news. But what's your advice to all of us in terms of this is such a hot topic right now and there's so much noise around it that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what's your advice around it like how do we approach it so how do we approach it from a leadership standpoint should we be embracing it and finding ways to implement it utilize it within our workplaces what should our understanding of it be what's the guidance that you're giving organizations I think we probably should stop calling it intelligence because I don't know that we've actually achieved intelligence. It's not sentient. We should talk about it like it's it's a more of a mouthful, but artificial cognition or augmented intelligence in terms of it's a way to extend our potential like every other tool we've ever had. It's just doing it in a way that people can't quite wrap their head around. And should we be embracing it? Absolutely. Should we be playing with it? Absolutely. Should we be firing a bunch of people and assuming it can do those jobs? Absolutely not. So what we should do is every time we think we can hand off something to technology, we ought to be reaching up to learn something there. Let me transition away from that. I'm glad we talked about that just because, again, it's so topical. But I want to get into a lot of stuff that I read in your book that I'm hoping you can flesh out. And one of it has to do with just the big picture of employee turnover. Mm -hmm. So we know the great resignation produced a massive number of people quitting their jobs over the last two years. And that that was setting all-time records. Mm -hmm. But what you point out is that it started before like the quitting started before. So you said that it's risen from 1.4% of the working population every month in 2009 to about 2.5% today. So it's fallen off just a little bit in the last couple of months, but still is right on that well over 2% number every single month. So I'm curious as to what you specifically, specifically is the operant word here, believe has caused this, This long-term trend and the significant increase in people, I just set this up, that we take it for granted that people can just quit jobs and move on to another one, but that's a highly disruptive decision to make. You lose your friends, you lose your continuity, you lose your tenure, you lose whatever benefits you've banked. And so when so many people are doing this in greater numbers, what's what's the cause, the big picture for you? So we'll start with the cause. The increase started way back in 2009. It started to peak again 
in 2019. But if you look at the line, it really starts way back then. I think that many folks are starting to realize that we used to trade loyalties for security. So I would give them my loyalty to the company. They would keep me secure. And at one time, that was my entire career. The company will take care of me. And then it became the company would build my career with me. They will provide me with opportunities. You know, each iteration of this renegotiated, silently renegotiated contract between the employer and the employee pushed more risk over on the employee and it pushed more protection over on the employer. And I think we just hit a breaking point. And it was a combination of that generational change and then why it peaked during or after the pandemic is is the existential crisis. When you're looking around and you're saying a million people have died, I've lost people that I've known. What am I doing with my life? Is this what I'm doing with my life? I think that had people re-examine sort of that imbalanced relationship they had with organizations. Now, I think that the starting to see a little bit of a decline in that Some may say that's the economy and people feeling the pressure of it. It may also be people settling into the right places. I always look for the good news. I'm a belligerent optimist. The good news in all this churn is that people were retraining in a lot of instances. So 53% of the people who left between 21 and 22, according to Pew, reported they went to a different job or function or industry. That's people saying, you know what? I was in catering, I hated catering, or I was in customer service, and I hated it. And now I'm in financial services, or I'm in tourism, or I'm in, you know, a different position that I feel is much more connected to my values and my lifestyle and the impact I want to have on the world. So I think the changes is, is multiple factors that are contributing to it. I think if it's settling out right now, which it might, it might be people finding they're in the right place now. But talent's going to be mobile going forward. We have to get used to that. There is no longer a stigma that you have to stay there with a company for X number of years. You stay there long enough so you can learn and contribute. And then when you feel like the runway is getting a little short for you, you can go somewhere else and there's no stigma. Well, there's no stigma, but I'm wondering if you think that from an employee standpoint, that's fair game. But do you think that organizations made a big mistake by making work so transactional? Absolutely, yes. Yes, because you don't have that tacit knowledge for one thing. Explicit knowledge is knowledge that you can codify. If you can codify it, you can write it down and hand a piece of paper to somebody else or a manual to somebody else and they can read it and they can know how to operate. That's explicit knowledge. That's also the stuff that can be automated, much of it. Tacit knowledge is the stuff you need to learn by doing, by being in that environment. You got to learn by mentoring with somebody, shadowing somebody, going through the motions of it. And there's going to be a huge hemorrhaging of tacit knowledge with this turnover. So I'm not a proponent of it. I'm just saying it's a reality we have to prepare for. Josh Bersman had some interesting stats on what happens within an organization as as it changes. And he found that the organizations that have a lot of turnover, and it's something on the neighborhood of north of 20% a year, and it might even be 30% a year that turnover. And with that, you've got a huge amount of disruption. And he also says that, you know, the sort of 10% of that is involuntary, 20% of it is voluntary. That's kind of the foundational churn, if you think about it, like a big wave. And then on top of that, we've got sort of creative destruction, which is technology, globalization, change, consolidation, new business models, that's basically just killing certain occupations and rebirthing new occupations. So if you think about that, like a wave, that's four to 5% annually. At that rate, we're turning over the market workforce every 20 years. And then within that, the piece we need to grow is what I call refreshing or freshening. And that's the folks who are, I was an accountant and I worked for a large company and they say, you know what? We don't need you in accounting anymore. We really need you in data analytics, and we're going to help you train to make that transitioning. And we're not capturing how much of that freshening is going on, but the more organizations that can retrain people for when the positions change or the demand for the number of positions or the demand for the number of tasks change, you keep people within the organization. They, they keep that tacit knowledge, and they learn and grow with you acquiring additional explicit knowledge. That is the A game. But the reality is it's just going to continue to be a lot of churn in the market. Well, from the made-up workplace futurist name point of view, 
as you're talking about this, there's institutional knowledge that's forfeited everybody every time somebody leaves. Yep. There's customer knowledge. There's customer relationships. Yep. There's relationships with colleagues. Like, I know how this person will operate, and so I'll do it this way to serve them. And that all goes out the window. Yep. So I'm wondering, from again, from the workplace futurist point of view, or just your own research or optics, you think that organizations are going to start to pivot backwards where they're going to look at retention as a really critical metric and to effectively do the things that they need to do from a leadership standpoint to create cultures where people want to belong longer? Now, my father worked for General Electric for 42 years yeah. and made it all the way to the top. And that day is over. But if somebody wants to spend 10 years at General Electric... The only way that I see that happening is that people are feeling like this is a place to grow. This is a place to contribute. I have a manager who supports me. I'm valued here. But I'm also coming from a point of view where they just assume I not leave. Like if I left, they would be very disappointed. Not like we're okay with turnover. We'll just find somebody new for you. So is there any reason to believe that companies will revert to more of a traditional way of running their companies? Or are they just building turnover into their business plan and recruiting and training and all those costs are just washed away through their projects and their profitability schemes? Well, there's a lot of distance between what your father experienced and where we are today. So when your father experienced 42 years at one company, the change rate was a whole lot slower. And what's happened over the last, I don't know how many years ago that your father was working there, is the change rate started to accelerate. And so companies started lunging at skills. And so they would throw out 10,000 people and hire 7,000 new people or throw out 5,000 people and hire 12,000 new people. Each time they said, you know, we laid off people who did not have the skills and knowledge we need and we hired new people. Rather than retraining them, they did that for decades. And now they're at a point where we have labor shortages and an empowered workforce and they're acting the same way they did when they had a surplus workforce a few years ago. And so to answer your question, yes, I think they're going to or should be looking to retain people and retain the right people and create environments where people can grow. They don't want to retain everybody because there's always somebody who doesn't fit or won't learn and adapt to the new paradigms as they keep emerging. That's just a reality. So you're not going to keep everybody the way you used to. We also shouldn't be throwing people out the way you used to. There's a real value, as you beautifully illustrated, in customer relationships and employee relations and technical know-how that you want to have in an organization. But I don't understand quite even when I look at how many of these layoffs were done, because the impact of those layoffs is not just the people that left, it's the people who stay as well. And you've basically told people, I don't value you, I don't trust you, and you could be next in any second when you lay people off by email. So they're not acting like they get it, but I sure hope they do soon. I've made that exact point here several times, yeah. and they're not getting it, at least from the metrics. So any day now, we've just begun May, and in the next two or three days, we'll see the new JOLT report. Yeah. But one month ago, we were still losing 4 million people in turnover. Yeah. And the argument is, of course, that with layoffs happening, that people were going to get fearful and say, well, I better cling on to what I've got before the music stops. And that's not what's happened. No, in fact, research that it drives it up more by about 7 or 8%. Because you look around and you say, well, I'm getting out of here before they show me the door so I can be the master of my own fate. So it actually increases quit rates. So, yeah, so this is a mess. But you do think that there's going to, because I'm from Missouri here, and I have no reason to believe that companies are shifting and have taken specifically turnover. Seriously. Like, if I could advise a company to do one thing, it would be to not just track employee turnover, but to track it by the individual manager. So you can start to see who's driving people out of your organization. Who are the ones that repel people? And who are the ones that retain people in a way that makes people feel like I want to be here and contribute and be a great employee versus the one that people start working for and say, okay, it's immediate time for me to get my resume up and 
get out of here. I believe that it's disproportionate in the hands of some managers versus most managers. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I just talked to a company in the last week that I'm going to be doing a talk for, and they've just instituted a new like review policy because they never had one before. They had sort of like acted like a startup for decades rather than putting in formal policies. But the interesting thing that I heard them say was when they're doing their reviews and say, you know, you've got Sally, Jean, and Jamal all on one team and Sally isn't performing. Well, if Robin is the manager for those three, Robin's going to get called in to find out why Sally is not performing rather than Sally getting called in. They're seeing performance issues as being manager failures as opposed to saying Sally didn't make the cut. You know, we're going to do a reduction in force. We're going to get rid of Sally. I'm going to say, do we have the right managers we need? Because we presume we hired the right people. We'll look at the people after we make sure that the manager is handling this, which I think is really an important shift. Well, this is a classic case of and and both. They should be doing both, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we, we've been never doing that before. What we were doing is just eliminating people all over the, never looking at the managers. Yeah, the manager goes in and goes, Sally's not worth it, man. We got to let her go. And they go, okay. Yeah. So the bad manager gets to continue that bad behavior. So kudos to them. You argue that, as we're talking about this, that when we moved into a hybrid working relationship, that the employer-employee dynamic moved from employees with more power to employers now trying to seek it back, trying to retain it. And I don't understand why companies and leaders can't see that shared power is where the future is. And it's not one or the other, this massive tug of war going on here. But do you see this? I think, you know, you pointed out the layoffs. It wasn't just that companies were laying off thousands of people. It was the way they did it that was so disrespectful, right? But yeah, that's my point. Yeah, I understand that business model changes and market changes and you need a smaller group in this area. And if you can't repurpose them, layoffs should be your last resort. They shouldn't be your first resort. But the callous just email or I got up in the morning and my phone didn't work and I've worked for the company for 20 years. What? But isn't this a power play? Aren't they operating from a, we can do this and we can get away from this mindset? Yeah, I mean, I have talked to some people who feel that Elon Musk has emboldened some folks to behave horribly. I know you don't think that that's ever going to be productive in terms of creating an engaged workforce that's unleashing its potential and creating really fantastic new value. It's just not. So it's very short-term thinking. Well, I don't think that people forget, you know, I've been around the world long enough to know that when people remain in a company where layoffs just occurred, that, I mean, their whole body chemistry changes. All of a sudden they're marinating in toxic chemicals that say, hey man, you better be leery, be on your guard because if anything else happens that's bad around here, more people are going to go and it could be me. And I just think... What a horrible message to be sending to people you're trying to engage, that you're trying to retain, you're trying to keep. So a more thoughtful exiting strategy would have been beneficial, not just in terms of just the PR of it, but when people can leave and say, you know what, I didn't want to leave here, but they sure handled it beautifully. And I come back here in a minute. That's the message that we're not seeing. I mean, there's no evidence of any company where people are saying that, not publicly traded at least. Yeah, I had heard Stripe did it that way because I had pointed out to somebody I was talking to recently that I think Brian Chesky's May 5th, 2020 letter about Airbnb layoffs is a masterclass in emotional intelligence. He said, listen, we have no idea what's going on because May 5th, 2020, we knew nothing. We were washing our vegetables on the front porch. We were wearing hazmat suits. We didn't know how the virus was transcribed. We didn't think we'd ever fly again. It was a real period of a real fear and, and and it was very scary he wrote this beautiful letter saying you know unfortunately i have to lay off 25 percent of our team because we don't know what's happening with travel right now we do know that travel will return we do know that every one of those people who left it has nothing to do with anything they did or didn't do they were central to building this organization as of today everybody's a shareholder i fast forwarded all of our you know agreements in terms of equity we're going to give people the longest severance that we can. We're going to give people the longest health care that we can. We're going to create a network to try to help people get employed somewhere else. 
you will always be part of the founding team of Airbnb. You will always be a part of helping us build this organization. You will always belong here. It was brilliant. It is brilliant. But you know what the most disappointing part of it is? What? There hasn't been another letter like that since 2020. That's true. That's true. And it, I just pointed out because it was a period, it's not like now it's like, oh, we've got some economic uncertainty. It was full-throated fear. You know, we had no idea economically, scientifically, socially, we didn't know what was going to happen to any of us. And so to have that steady hand and that reassurance and that emotional intelligence in that moment is something that I point to. But you're, you're absolutely right. There hasn't been anybody that brave in the past three years. But that's a display of heart, if you don't mind my saying, right? And to recognize where people are in the moment and to say, what do they need to hear from me as the CEO? Because he didn't know what was going to happen. He's wearing his hazmat suit. He's wearing his mask everywhere and doesn't know when this is going to end. And he's putting out there his values by saying, you people did matter here. Like, I mean, this is one of the things that, and I don't mean to emphasize Google here, but the thing that I really was troubled by was the very much lack of that, which is to say that this is only a 25-year-old company and a lot of those people had been there to build it. And they let them all go and they cut off their technology so they couldn't even say goodbye to their fellow colleagues and employees. And there was no thank you for helping us build this great company. And I just think what a miss that is. So just to pin this down and stop the griping here, have they learned? Do you think CEOs and leaders have learned that this is not the way to go about it? I don't talk to every single one of them. The ones I have spoken to are getting it, are trying. You know, they're facing a lot of uncertainty. Are we going to have soft landing, hard landing? What is the demand going to look like? We've never had this level of ongoing uncertainty and ambiguity, and it's been rising. You know, Nick Bloom's uncertainty index from Stanford is fascinating, and it's a combination of, you know, geopolitical events and supply chain events, and it's going to be climate events for sure economic events that has got the outlook is not as clear as it was three or four years ago. And that's something that all leaders are going to have to contend with. And to the point I think you're trying to make, they ought to be protecting and preserving their workforce from the unpredictability of those wins to the degree they can. Agreed. Thank you. In your book, you say that the most rapidly transforming demographic in the workplace is gender and sexual identity. Mm -hmm. And let me spell this out. Gender, once firmly defined as fixed and binary, meaning male and female, are increasingly understood to be fluid and to exist on a continuum. Globally, the rates of people identifying as LGBTQ are doubling with each passing generation. So that's a quote from your book. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go too far afield here, but I've never seen information like that in a leadership book, and it made me curious. So I have two questions, and then I have something else that goes with it. First, why might this be happening? How have you researched this? And coincidentally, I just had another futurist on this show, Rohit Bhargava, who I mentioned a minute ago. Mm -hmm. And he's the author of the book, The Future Normal. And he wrote about this as well, saying that half of British people age 18 to 24, rate themselves as something other than exclusively heterosexual. Mm -hmm. I'm more than two generations apart from this age group. But since you called it out in your book and Rohit called it out in his, how is this specifically going to impact organizations and workplace leaders in the future? Well, I bring up these statistics in almost every stage I speak on or, or every audience I speak with. And the reason is that I don't think, depending on the age of an organization, people are fully aware of this, which is a massive shift. You know, I'm a member of this community, so I'm openly gay. So what I've seen in my own experience is we've gone from don't ask, don't tell to where did you register for your wedding? So we have gone from, you know, we're in the U.S. here. So more people being against marriage equality to more people being for marriage equality in a very relatively quick period of time. And then what sort of came out around that was this greater and greater awareness that gender isn't necessarily binary for everybody. Now, I'm not a scientist putting this opinion forth, and I think that's who we should be listening to as doctors and scientists on this front. They don't believe gender is fixed and binary for everybody. 
And that was something that wasn't expressed before. Very few people transition their gender, you know, a couple decades back. Now it's very, very common, relatively speaking. And it can be at a young age where young children can say, I'm not female, I'm not male. And how they handle that is between them and their doctor and no politician, period. But when it comes to the workplace, and the reason I talk about it is because it's doubling every generation. So more and more people are saying, I'm not a member exclusively of the heterosexual community. They're saying they are something else on the sexuality front, which is their business and probably may or may not come up at work. When it comes to gender, it's how do you refer to me? What pronouns do you use? What bathroom do I use? And by the way, whether or not you have a lot of people in your organization that are transitioning, you've got people who are parents of people who are transitioning. You definitely have customers or parents of customers. So this is happening at a societal and a scale level that we've all got to kind of wrap our heads around. You can have your own opinion, sure. But that doesn't mean you can have an opinion about somebody else's right to express themselves. And I'm seeing more and more organizations are saying, you know, they were uncomfortable with that a couple of years ago. And more and more are saying, yes, we now have health care for everybody or we have bathrooms or we have pronouns. And especially when I talk to organizations that directly, whether it's finance or insurance, who say, I need to think differently about how I approach my customers. I can't make assumptions about what pronouns they use or how they want to be referred to or how they want to plan their lives. So it's a very big shift on something that's very fundamental that people have a lot of attitudes about. My attitude is let's let the professionals decide. Let's let the people decide how they express themselves and let's protect the most vulnerable among us. In terms of workplaces, are you seeing this being a disruptive thing or are we taking this in stride? Like what's the guidance to a workplace manager? Because they're going to experience it and I want to advance their knowledge and expertise in being a really, I mean, I hate to use this term, but heart-led in the way that they're approaching this. Sure. I had one organization I spoke to in New York a couple of months ago, very progressive and very young organization in the beauty industry, very liberal, large percentage of the people in the audience, which was the whole company pretty much, told me they identified as something other than exclusively heterosexual. They were very supportive of gender and sexuality, expression and rights. And they started telling me that they were struggling with language because there was one woman in the audience who said, listen, I'm from the South. And I say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, because that's how I was raised. And I find myself offending people all the time because I'm using expressions that may not align with them. And then someone else in the audience said, I know how to answer that question. It's to be as open and authentic as possible. So if you're a manager and you have somebody on your team who maybe not present as non-gender binary, someone may tell you, the thing is to just say, listen, this is new to a lot of us. It's new to me. Please forgive me. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm definitely going to make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. How would you like to be addressed? What would you like me to use as pronouns for you? How would you like this to be handled in terms of the restrooms that you use in our organization? And then we're all going to get educated one experience at a time. I mean, it's pretty classic. We've found that people who know somebody who's gay are more supportive of marriage equality. Not surprising. You know somebody who's gone through a transition, you become more supportive because you understand what that person's going through. And I think we're doing that at scale right now. So what leaders need to do is just be say, I don't know how to handle this and I'm asking you for help because I'm going to learn through you. And the more you teach me about what's right for you, the better I'm going to be at the next person who comes down the line. There'll be another person. And I want to get better at this. What I like about this is that it's empathy, but it's dual empathy. So it's an extension of empathy to the person the manager needs clarification on in terms of how to interrelate with them. But it's also empathy to oneself, which is to say, look, this is new to me. And so the best way for me to learn and to become more effective is to ask the very person for their help. Yeah. How can you lose with a strategy like that? That's great. And then remind them that by them helping you be better at helping them, they're helping you with the next person. So they're educating, you know, one person at a time. When I speak about this in audiences, people come up to me and say, I'm a parent. 
nobody's talking about this yet. You know, they just switched healthcare providers at work and now I can't get the healthcare for my son, daughter, child, however they identify that they had in the previous or, you know, I don't know how to talk about this at work. And so it's not just the workers, although it will be because Gen Z is only 13% of the workforce right now, they'll be 30 by 2030. It's coming to an office near you. It's got to be something you're going to have to deal with it as employees and as customers. I didn't want to miss the opportunity for that exact reason. Yeah. It's already there. It's not the future. It's happening already. Yeah. And so the more effective we can become at doing this, the better. And it just makes us a better leader because you can be more caring for somebody who's different than you in that respect. It affects every cell in your body. You become more caring towards everyone because you have to stop and reassess how you're coming across and how you're influencing and what your tolerance level is. So I'm glad we had this conversation. So thank you. Sure. And it just makes you better across the boards. I mean, I, I went out for coffee this morning with a friend of mine who's going through a transition right now, later, much later in life. And I said to the person, hey, you were going to the gym before. You're not going to the gym anymore. Why did it change? And and this friend of mine said, well, I was at the gym and then I realized I had to go to the bathroom and I, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I would be welcome and, you know, whichever one I needed to use. And so I just don't go there anymore. And I thought, that doesn't even cross my mind. You know, like I operate through the world. I can go anywhere. But that's a very fundamental thing when you think I'm okay in this environment as long as I don't have to identify as a particular gender at any particular moment and that stopped them from going there. Mm, Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Since you've made that point, I think that it makes us more humane. Yes. It's forcing us to become more humane. I mean, unless we're just completely intolerant of it and dismiss the whole thing, which is going to be a problem in workplaces because all kinds of people are going to occupy our workplaces. So you better get good at dealing with massive diversity Yes, because you're not going to have a choice. Right. And even from a racial standpoint, you can be talking about racial diversity, but the 18 and under demographic as of the 2020 survey, which was three years ago. So now those folks are 21. There's no racial majority. So we already have a diverse workforce. It's already here. Yeah. Massive shift that I'm sure many people aren't aware of. Yeah. Okay. So I want to transition to just a big picture question, which is like, what's your assessment? If you can give, and this is like, it's going to sound like a ridiculous question, but I think you can answer it. If you were to give a a grade, A, B, C, D, F, to workplace management today, what would you give? And what would you spotlight as being the most important practices that are missing? I'm actually going to give the grade in time periods because I think it'll make more sense. I think from March 2020 to about six months to a year ago, I would have given management an A minus because I think they adapted superbly to an onslaught of unknowns by making their people feel safe, making their people feel appreciated. We had higher levels of engagement during that period of time, during some period of real stress. We trusted our people. We gave them agency and autonomy. And six months to a year ago, we sort of forgot all the things we learned. And why risk a good crisis? You know, we have this opportunity to completely redesign work, to unleash the potential of more of us. And it's not about where it takes place. I mean, that will be certainly one of the questions, but how we come together, when we come together, how we regard each other, we've just had this massive slide from a period of appreciation and trust to a period of suspicion and just horrible behavior. And I don't know why that's happening. I I cannot figure it out. Well, it makes me a little cynical because we had record all-time high engagement during the A-minus period that you described. And so you look at that and you say, well, what contributed to that? What contributed to that was that managers said, hey, people are working from home and they've got kids going to school and they're trying to figure it out and they're partners or spouses are working off the same computer or the same office, and you've got complete disarray. So we need to be thoughtful, and we're not seeing people anymore. So let's send them a thoughtful gift, and let's communicate more, and communicate more thoughtfully and more care. 
And then when we thought that the whole thing was over with and it's like back to normal, we shedded those behaviors, which made me worried that they were never sincere in the first place. We just thought that's what we needed to do. And now we go back and say, well, we don't need to do that anymore. And so that's the concern that I have is that we haven't fully bought in to the idea that these were essential in the first place. And what magnified the need was COVID. But you never should have stopped it if you wanted to keep people engaged and thrilled to be working there. That's the gap. Yeah, I was just asked what my biggest fear was. And I said, my biggest fear is that we didn't learn anything, that we went through this period of, you know, it was about a thousand days where we worked differently, we interacted with each other differently, we had some, you know, basically pilot experiments at scale that we never had planned on having, and we forget all the things we learned about our ability to adapt, our ability to work in different environments, our ability to build social capital remotely, which isn't the default, but it's really helpful, and we learned how to express care for each other, and we basically exhibited some pretty damn good empathetic leadership for a thousand days. And my fear is that we're forgetting that. Mine too. Mine too. But we're here to remind everyone, don't forget it. Yeah. When you hit 40% engagement, when you've never hit that number before, it's a sign you were doing something really, really well. And so I do think we've forgotten it and I hope we regain it. Another transition is that in your book, you say that we've crossed the threshold from the shareholder value era into the human value era. And I so very much want to believe you, but I'm going to need some convincing. What's your evidence since all the recent layoffs, which we were talking about a few minutes ago that we've seen, clearly were done in the interest of pleasing shareholders at the expense of workers. And I've yet to see any publicly traded company seek any alternatives to layoffs when furloughs or hiring freezes or any creative approach could have been used as a first measure in lowering costs and headcounts. So we saw none of that. All of this has been done in deference to shareholders and to propping up the share price. So you said at the beginning, you're an optimist. What gives you optimist that this is changing? I will concede that point to you. Yes, this. <laughs> I have to. I, I have to. I mean, I am I getting to. points? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have a scoreboard here, but. I will concede that, that that perspective that you have is undeniable. The source of my perspective and my hope is that when you look at how value is created in organizations, the shareholder value started in about 1975 when Milton Friedman wrote that essay in the New York Times. He was an economist from the University of Chicago. But during that period of time, or at least when he wrote it, 83% of the value of all the enterprise value of all the companies on the S&P 500 came from tangible capital. It was property, plant, and equipment. We made stuff into other stuff, and humans were just a cog in that process. So the idea of creating humans as a cost to contain sort of made sense. If you just looked at it from a value creation standpoint, you didn't look at it from a human standpoint. Well, fast forward to 2020, which was the last time they did this calculation, 90% of the value, enterprise value, of all the companies on the S&P 500 is intangible. Patents, ideas, human activity. So that's where my contention comes from, that all the value is being created now by the humans. Securities and Exchange Commission in 2021 said we need to start accounting differently for humans. So far, it's just keeping track of them. There's still the expense side of the balance sheet. But sooner or later, we have to rethink the accounting metrics of it, as well as, you know, if they're the most precious assets in your organization, and they are, how would you start treating them you would like if they were precious metals or really important pieces of technology? We treated intangible assets that were uh, valuable better than we're treating the intangible assets that are humans. For some reason, we're slow to catch on. But I think we're undeniably on the cusp of that because that's where all the value is coming from, from the humans and their activity. Well, nobody's presented an alternative that makes sense yet, but we do account for the cost of people as liabilities. Right, right, right. right. So you start there. You're our greatest asset, but we account for you as a liability. So there's a bit of a problem there. I had Alan Murray on, who's the CEO of Fortune magazine. And of course, he wrote a book that made the same argument that you made. And, you know, I challenged him as well. You could lay people off without making a big deal about it. 
you know, you don't need to go to the press and say, hey, we just laid 12,000 people off in one day. You could come out and say, we have recognized that we've overhired and we have a hiring freeze. And our goal over the next 90 days is to see our headcount drop from X to Y. And unfortunately, if we don't get to Y, then we will have another layer of thinking that's going to go into getting us there because we have to get there from a business standpoint. But we're going to try it a way that isn't going to harm our employees. Nobody says this. Nobody even thinks like this. It's easier to go to Wall Street and say, we're giving you 12,000 people or we're giving you 5,000 people. And of course, the stock prices go up immediately. Yeah. So I'm still in the show me state, but I get what you're saying. Well, I'm trying to promote the message so we get folks to change. I mean, I've spoken at accounting conferences and they're trying to figure it out. There are people who are trying to do this. It's not going to happen overnight. Do you have the evidence on your side that we're not making those changes yet? I have the hope of belief and belligerent optimism on my side that we will make those changes. Well, good. Okay, Heather, time for a brief departure from our great conversation. I want to break away for a segment that we cleverly call the heartbeat round. It's a longstanding tradition. You're a regular listener. You already know where I'm going with this. We want you to answer each question in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? Wanting to play? I'm a little intimidated because I've heard people do this really well, but I'm ready to play. No pressure on you. All right, here we go. Someone famous, real or from fiction, whose eyeglasses you most admire? Oh, you know, Elton John's got to be the leader there. Elton John's got fantastic glasses. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Uh, Ego. First app you check in the morning? First app I check in the morning, uh, LinkedIn. Something you really like to see changed in the world. I'd like more people to catch that gratitude contagion. A person alive or not, you'd most like to have dinner with? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. I think it's really fascinating that he put together that team of rivals. And the moment we're in in terms of political polarization, I'd like to see a character like that emerge. You can knit together both sides. That's funny. I mean, I ask these questions and of course I answer them myself and I think, who would I want to have dinner with? Abraham Lincoln is the number one answer. So that's fairly interesting. And I just saw an interview with Michael J. Fox and he said to your last question, he said that it's gratitude that gives you the ability to be optimistic. Yeah, I saw that. I'm a super fan of Michael J. Fox. Really fantastic quote. Yeah. So what should be required reading for every human alive? Um, to kill a mockingbird. Quality you consider most essential to your success? Uh, clearly, I'm comfortable with failure. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you? I've never taken a speaking class or a journalism course, and I've written three books, and I speak for a living. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Times, New York Times. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? I'm trying to make this a short answer. I was going to a product pitch just out of undergrad. I had an idea for a product that a company was interested in, which is really hard to do when you're 21 years old. I brought a mentor with me. I presented the product and then he pulled me aside afterwards when at the time I was full of myself and he said, you're smart and we got here, but you have no idea when people are listening to you. You are not picking up social cues. You are not paying attention to your audience and you better learn that fast. And I did. Trait you most admire in other people? Humility. You recently had a health scare. Yep. What did it teach you? Uh, the preciousness and fragility of life. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Generosity. And your synonym for the word heart? Redemption. Wow. Very good. All very good answers. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Heather, we've made it to the end of our conversation without intentionally discussing the underlying theme of your book, which is empathy. So tie up all the loose ends here. Yeah. So when Chris and I wrote this book, we knew the perspectives we wanted to put together. We knew we had to organize the content. We had the greatest challenge picking a title. And the empathy advantage just made sense to me. But sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, this is a book that will tell you what empathy is and why it matters. Rather, this is a book that tells you that empathy can only be the answer to the challenges we currently face. So the workforce is empowered. Most people have at every level in organization now, it used to be just at the top, have people reporting to them that have skills and knowledge that they do not. 
So we need to move from individual intelligence to collective intelligence. We need to make four fundamental leadership shifts from mindset, culture, behavior, and approach. We go through all of those things that sort of land you back at the only possible answer is to be empathetic with yourself, with your people, and with your approach. And so that's what the book's about. The first bit of it is about meet your new workforce because it's not the workforce you left in 2019. They've been through an existential crisis. They are empowered and there's generational and attitudinal changes in there. The world's become even more complex. The rate of change increased during the pandemic. And so we're going to see that the maps and models of the past are useless at best and dangerous at worst. So you have to think differently about how you organize and navigate through work. And then finally, you know, we used to hire leaders who were unquestioned experts who could make decisions in certainty. And now we need a humble, curious learner that can inspire potential and effectiveness with love, belonging, and caring. It's about 180 degrees away from what we had been promoting as leaders. And I know you well know this because you've been on it for more than a decade. And so the last section is how do you think about yourself as a leader? How do you change some of those behaviors And how do you get on the path of really unleashing the potential of your workforce by being more empathetic? Someone said to me in an interview, does that mean I can make concessions for people, expect less and get used to it? And I thought, well, on the day that your dog died or on the day that, you know, they've had to bury their parents or a tragic day. Yes, you do that on a tragic day. But more times than not, the empathy is going to drive greater performance because when people feel love, belonging, self-expression, impact, connection to their values, a relationship with you that you actually care about them, you get greater performance. That's the irony in, in some of the behaviors that are taking place right now that we've talked about over the last hour. Very good. Well, we'll leave it there and uh, amen to all of that. Thank you so very much for joining us, Heather. It's been really fun and very informative. I got to tell you, and I think I told you before, I am a super fan of this podcast. I think you do a fantastic job pulling out the most salient insights in most people's books. So I listen to your podcast and then I get the book and sometimes I'm happy and sometimes I'm disappointed because you already pulled out all the great stuff. You know, I appreciate that very much. All right, Heather, take care. All right, thanks. Before I say goodbye, I want to thank my team. These include Mr. Ken Boynton, Kerry Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer, Eric Oz. And wonderful thanks go to you for listening. We love producing this show. I've said this over and over and will continue as long as we see that our audience keeps growing. That's really our only metric. And your word of mouth referrals about us, by the way, are hugely appreciated and helpful. And if you're able to support us and our work even more, we'd be so grateful if you'd pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, and even invite me as a speaker at your next meeting or event. Our theme song is Take the Eight Train, a jazz standard written in 1938 by Billy Strayhorn. That was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And our version, in case you'd like to pick up a copy, is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. 